The following sermon was preached on January 17th, 2021 by Pastor Mark Burkholtz on the basis of John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Good morning to all of you. Uh, a couple things by way of preliminary introduction. Uh, as I understand it, I'm the first guest preacher in the history of Sure Foundation, correct? And, and uh, that, that's actually a good thing. When I go around to visit guys who are in semi-isolated areas, like last week, I'll tell you more about that in a minute, I was in New York. We don't have a lot of retired Wells pastors in New York and guest speakers that are readily available. Here you would. But I, I still offer to fellas like Craig that you probably preach 20, 25, 30 sermons in a row, and I would be happy to bring a sermon along, fill in for you. And that's a good thing. Uh, it gives him a week off, but more importantly, it helps an audience like you to say, thank goodness we have a young man, typically, who has energy and insights and not some old fossil. Okay? So that's a good thing. Second thing, uh, keep your folders open to page 8. I'm not going to reread the gospel Craig already did that for you, but we'll go back almost verse by verse this time. Uh, divides pretty easily into three main points, and I'll try and make those clear to you, but I'll, I'll refer back to those verses as we go along. Uh, this much by way of introduction. So as uh, mentioned before, I was in New York, not New York City, that's a different trip. I was in upstate New York, so Syracuse and then Watertown, which is just short of Canada as you head north out of New York. That's where I was last weekend. Uh, work with the two congregations, and I fly out of Syr Syracuse Airport, known as Hancock International Airport. There's your trivia. Hancock International, because once a day there's a flight that goes to Toronto. That makes it an international airport. Otherwise, it's pretty much like what you have here in Sioux Falls. It's a little regional airport, 10, 12 flights out of there each day. It, it's way oversized for the amount of traffic that actually goes through that airport. So I got the first flight out, I got to fly into Detroit and then home to Denver. I know better, because I've been there a lot, but I, I, I know that I do not have to get up at 4 o'clock when I'm right down the street from the airport, return the rental car, get to the airport, and, but I, I did it. I got up at 4, I'm at the airport by 4.30. Dunkin' Donuts was just opening, got a lousy cup of coffee, I go down to the end of Course B. I'm sitting there by myself in, in an area probably twice the size of this room that serves as six gates down at the end of Concourse B at Syracuse Airport, Hancock International Airport. Roughly 200 seats down there. You visualizing this? Empty. Nobody's there. No gate agent, nobody. Just me and my cup of coffee, and that's okay. I'm going to do some reading. I'm there alone for about 10 minutes. In walks a lady. This is not sexist. She just happened to be a lady. Could have been a guy. 200 seats, big open area, me seated there alone, COVID era, social distancing. Where does she sit? Right next to me. I'm not making this up. And I'm looking around. Those of you who remember Candid Camera in the old days, <clears throat> I'm looking around for the camera. Is this a, is this a joke? What's going on here? She, now, she was dressed kind of oddly, younger lady, 
puts her earbuds in. She's got some cruddy music going, relatively loud, so I can hear this stuff. She's eating something, and she belches, not making that up, and then just goes on with her business. And I said, well, I was here first. I'm not moving. You want to be weird and sit next to me? <laughs> so it is. And there we sat, the only two people in that area, for probably another 20, 25 minutes before anybody else showed up. Now, now why does that bother me? It's got nothing to do with COVID. It, it's space. You've invaded my turf, lady. I marked this area. This is mine. You have come into my space. Incorrect in this culture. You don't do that. Uh, here, here's some stats that, that, that show you how we become inculcated with the idea that we've got to have more space. Even as the population booms, we've got to have greater space. <coughs> Commercial development, I'm told, between 1960 and 2000, uh, the required space for the typical person who works in an office quadrupled. You had to quadruple your office space because more space was required. You had to have bigger offices, especially for mid-level and upper-level management, right? Housing space, at least where I live. First energy boom and housing boom and everything in Denver was in 1970. And then when we put up in a parsonage in 2000, I was told by the construction guy, do you know that the average house I was building in 1970 was half the size of what you're into? And we weren't building anything abnormally big. Uh, but it had gone from roughly 1,250 feet to 2,300 square feet. That was the average size in 30 years because we needed more space, right? And here's the kicker for church people. When we put up the chapel in 99-2000, learn this. The fanny space required now had uh, gone up by 1.87 times. I'll never forget that number. What, what had happened between 1980 and 2000? Well, we got bigger as Americans. We got wider, I suppose, a little bit. But the pew company, we had to put pews in because if we put in chairs, uh, the city was going to make us put in sprinkler systems. So we had to put pews in. And what we had to learn was we needed to plan for 1.87 times more fanny space than what we did back in 1980 if we'd been building that same chapel. Now, why? Well, we had gotten bigger as a culture, but also we got to have space. This was not the 60s like when I grew up. And I sat with one, my parents and my two siblings, and then somebody else would come into that same pew and pile their kids all together, and then somebody else would come in. You, you were old to remember this, right? Especially on a day like this when it's cold, you just piled on top of each other. And that was a good thing. Not now. We got to have space, and it's got nothing to do with COVID. Got to have space. And so, lady at the airport, you have invaded my space. What we're really talking about today is uh, Jesus is invading somebody's space. And those early brothers in Christ that we'll see in heaven were happy for it. And if you want to visualize especially what is Christmas about and what is this like, this matter of conversion and becoming a Christian, it really is an invasion of our space. And just as was true for Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, we're thankful that God does this. We, we do not resent it like me at the airport last Monday morning. Get out of my space. We are thankful that God does invade and come into our space. Let's look at the first few verses again. It's going to be verses 43, 44, and 45. <coughs> Before I reread that, you might want to keep in mind that John's gospel is a topical gospel. 
It doesn't go like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very chronologically oriented. It's a topical gospel. And the topic is, as it goes back and forth for 20-some chapters, Jesus has come into the world. What do you make of that? Do you follow him or not? And it goes back and forth and spins around, kind of like a Lutheran meeting. You know, we got a topic, and we'll come around after chatting to the main point again. Uh, that's the way John's gospel goes. What do you make of the fact that Jesus has come into the world as the Son of God? Do you accept him or reject him by faith? In the early chapters, it's primary examples of Jesus being accepted by faith, that people know who he is, and they say, we will follow you, which gets you to verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. In 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for, leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. These are accounts of people saying, <clears throat> we know who you are, and we will follow you. How did this come about? Jesus is from up north, but he's now proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. He's revealing himself in the cultural, social, religious hub down in the area of Jerusalem, and more specifically, east of Jerusalem, where John the Baptist is hanging out. Remember John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus? So Jesus is going to interact with John the Baptist, and in doing so, he encounters some people who have become the disciples or the followers of John the Baptist. And some of those names are scattered here. How did they get from up north in Bethsaida, a fishing village on the city of Galilee, or in the Sea of Galilee, to down south? Well, apparently they knowingly came there, left their nets, left their fishing, left their family, and came down south because culturally, and religiously, that's where it was happening. What was it? Somebody has popped up and said, I am the Elijah. That's John the Baptist. And he's beginning to say the Messiah is coming soon. And so these men had come from up north, and they are down in the southern area, roughly 75 miles as you walk it. They come further south. We were introduced to some of them in the verses before what I read to you that a man by the name of Andrew, don't hear much about him in the future as one of the core 12 disciples. Did I do something? Okay, we don't hear much about him later on as one of the 12 disciples, but here he plays an important role. Andrew and an anonymous man who were followers of John the Baptist heard him say, there's the Lamb of God, there's the Savior. Andrew says this is exciting news. He goes and fetches the guy who becomes probably the best-known disciple, his brother named Peter, Simon Peter. That's in the earlier verses. Now we're the next day, where Jesus doesn't wait for somebody to come and find him. He goes and finds another man from Bethsaida, interested in the Messiah, by the name of Philip. He says to him, follow me. I'm the Messiah. Philip says this is exciting news, and he gathers the guy that we're going to focus on a little more closely, a man by the name of Nathaniel. He says, we found the Messiah. Come and see him. In all of this, what we want to keep in mind is that Jesus has come into their lives and he invaded their space and they were happy for it. If you look at verse 45, probably the key verse in this section, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about it in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What this tells us is that this idea of a Messiah is not new to these men. They had probably grown up 
taught by their parents and down at the local synagogue reading what you and I call the Old Testament. And so the idea of a one God, a creator God, sinfulness, atonement, sacrifice, forgiveness, eternal life, these are ideas that are in their, in their heads. And though they're lowly fishermen, they are first and foremost spiritual men. And these are important concepts to them. And that's why they came looking for John the Baptist. And now they have found somebody even greater than John the Baptist. They have found Messiah himself, the one that you and I would call Jesus. The Old Testament has spoken of this Messiah in this way. Moses, author of the first five books of the Bible, said a great prophet will be among you. Isaiah, sometimes called the gospel writer of the Old Testament, had said the way to describe Messiah is both as a humble servant but also a conquering king. These fishermen, these early brothers in Christ, are familiar with these heavy, deep spiritual truths. And what they're seeing play out is everything that Jewish people have been waiting for for hundreds, literally thousands of years, is now coming true in our lifetime. Messiah is among us. I want to keep that in mind, that this basic thing that God demonstrates in chapter 1 of John's gospel, that Jesus, and before him John the Baptist, came looking for these people. It's not that they were necessarily looking for him and found him, first of all. I think that's especially important in this culture. I, I know that this is Theology 101, and you as Lutheran people have heard this all along, but it's worth hearing again in this culture where we seem to have this idea that we made up our minds and we found Jesus. And, and maybe it played out in this way, that, yeah, I went to vacation Bible school and my parents taught me Jesus and I went to Sunday school, but then I got older and I had to sort through that and embrace him for myself. Or maybe it was even heavier than that. I was taught about Jesus as a child. I went through Lutheran confirmation. I was a Christian all the way through high school. And then I went to college. And I found some really cool stuff. Eastern mysticism. Philosophies from the Germans from the 1800s. I'd never heard of that stuff. Wacko religions. Thought I'd dabble in that stuff for a while. But then I decided to get married. And then there was a child. And, well, I had to run back to my Christian roots. So I once again... Embrace Jesus. I chose that. Or if you're a fan of country western music or Americana in general, it goes like this. Once upon a time I was a Christian and I grew up a Christian, but then I got married and it was a bad woman and the woman left me. And then the job was bad. And my life went bad and the boss was bad. And then there was booze and I became a drunk. And like Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash, I just happened to have another Sunday morning hangover, and I tumbled by a church, and then I heard music, and I went inside, and I found the Lord. It's always me. I found. I chose. I re-upped with God. And the underlying theme in John chapter 1 is, you didn't do anything. God came looking for you. It might have been the voice of a parent or the voice of a child who said, could we go to church? Or a grandchild who corrected you and said, Grandpa, Grandma, 
time you went back to church, or a friend, or a co-worker. God uses voices in different ways. It might have been a Gideon's Bible, or maybe you dusted off your old Bible that you got on your coffee table and read it and said, yeah, it's time to go back to church. But in one way, shape, or form, or another, or through one voice or another, God said, I came looking, I invaded, I confronted, and I taught you. That's how it came about. Second aspect of this invasion, then, beyond the fact that God finds us in the first place, is that we are known by God. The man's name who is in front of you, Nathaniel, <coughs> is an interesting name. The word Nathan in Hebrew means gift, and El means God. So if you name your child Nathaniel, you are saying this is a gift from God. Good name. Not only was he a gift to his parents, Nathaniel could also say, I have received a gift from God, a Nathan from El. I have received the understanding of who the Messiah will be. Again, verse 45, he's got this in his head. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. God has gifted Nathanael with a basic understanding of what the Old Testament is saying. Now God seeks to build on that. But something is a barrier there. We find in verse 46, uh, Nathanael's got a stubborn old man just like all of us. Believes in the Messiah, wants to embrace God more closely, but now you're telling me that it's a guy from Galilee? Verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked. Uh, this is not bigotry here. Nazareth isn't that far from Bethsaida. Uh, Nathaniel is basically saying, you're telling me that Messiah is one of my own kind of people? I'm a lowly fisherman? Maybe he wasn't a fisherman, maybe he was a carpenter or bricklayer. That's what the Greek word suggests there, that Joseph was a carpenter or bricklayer, and, and that, so that's sort of a humble job too when we hear about Jesus. And, and Nathaniel is saying, it doesn't seem right that from a lower class or middle class area up north, away from the heart of the religious world and the cultural world, Jerusalem, that's where Messiah would come from? I don't find a Bible passage that suggests that he would come from the area of Galilee. And so I'm skeptical. When John points to Jesus and says, there's the Lamb of God, there's Messiah. Jesus deals with that skepticism. That's verse 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael approaching. He said of him, here's the true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. He, he had seen physically where Nathanael had been before even meeting him. He saw spiritually where Nathanael was at the time, waiting for the Messiah, understanding the Messiah will be important. And now he says, Nathanael, I'm it. And Nathaniel responds by saying, you know me. Greek's got two words for know. One is to say, I got some head knowledge. The other one is to say, I have some experiential knowledge. And Nathaniel's using the experiential thing. He's saying, I know by experience that I have now seen the Messiah. It's a beautiful confession of faith. More on that in a little bit. 
But what got his attention and what convinced him that this is, in fact, the Messiah? It's one of those omnis. You guys who grew up going to a Lutheran confirmation class, remember the three omni things that you had to learn? So there was the easy one that God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And I can even spell omnipotent, that God's all-powerful. And then there's this other one, omniscience, omniscience. How do you say that thing? What does it mean? But boy, you had to get it right in order to get out of confirmation class and get confirmed, right? That's what's on display here. Jesus, through omniscience, demonstrates to this guy, I, I am God. And if you stop and think about that teaching concerning God's omniscience, it is absolutely the most terrifying thing that's ever occurred, isn't it? I'm okay with God being present everywhere. I'm okay with God being omnipotent, all-powerful, but God knowing everything? Skeletons in my closet from 20 years ago that nobody else, not even my wife and children are aware of? God knows that? Skeletons from 25 minutes ago, the way I drove to church. God's aware of that. Cops didn't catch me. Nobody saw me. Yeah, yeah, he knows that. And that's absolutely terrifying, isn't it? And, and yet it's also the most comforting thing in the scriptures in many regards. That, that God knows me. And, and he knows that even as a Christian, I struggle. And the sinful nature will not go away. I, I got one of favorite authors the last 10 years, it's a lady by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. And, and she has this great line in her, her latest book, and she says, only the church could give us Judas. You, you couldn't get a Judas from outside the church, right? And isn't that a terrifying line? To say only from within the church could you get a Judas. And it's her way of saying, don't ever be surprised by the way that people sin within the church because all of us potentially are Judas. And you know that, and God knows that. And yet the beautiful part of the omniscience is that God knows your struggle. And he's going to have to revisit you often and reminds you of your baptism and gives you the Lord's Supper and gives you the encouragement from brothers and sisters like in a congregation to remain faithful. So God invades our space to find us, to reveal himself. And I think the last thing that you take away from this is that God invades your space to also inform. He informs Nathaniel and he informs us. Verse 49. <coughs> Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In that little statement, he says, I know you as the person. You're not just pretending to be God and doing some magical tricks. You are God. He says, I know your work, not to gather a physical kingdom, but to gather a spiritual kingdom. And he's saying in much the same words what Peter said up at Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus called all the disciples aside and said, people got different reactions to me, but what do you say? Remember what Peter spoke up and said? You are the Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus said, bingo, and on that sort of confession, I'm going to build my faith, or, or another confession of faith. 
All the disciples saw Jesus right away on, on Sunday, right? All of them saw him appear there, except the one guy who was missing. And Jesus came back a week later. Thomas was doubtful, skeptical. I got to touch you. I got to hear you. got to see you face to face. Jesus said, I'll give you that, Thomas. And what did Thomas say then? My Savior and my God. So this is the third big personal confession of faith, if you will, from that inner core of 12 disciples. Probably the less known of those, but it's Nathaniel saying, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, just like Peter said and just like Thomas said. He's got it. And now what does the Lord want to do? He says, Nathaniel, I would like to build on that faith. You know who I am as a Savior, as a Messiah. I'd like to build on that. Verse 50 and 51. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In effect, what Jesus is doing is he's taking a grown man and taking him back to his Sunday school lessons. Because in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, Nathaniel had probably learned what's found in Genesis 28, the original stairway to heaven before Led Zeppelin came up with a name, right? Remember Genesis 28? Jacob sees angels ascending and descending. God's way of saying to Jacob and to us, I will interact with you. When he got to be a little older, Nathaniel probably at synagogue had read what we find in Isaiah 64, Isaiah's prayer. Old King James is the way I learned it. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isn't that a great word, rend? It means to rip apart. That's what he was praying. Oh, Lord, that you would rip apart the heavens and, and come down. Nathaniel had also probably learned Daniel chapter 7, one of the hardest chapters in the Bible, one of Daniel's visions, in which Daniel describes the Lord in this way. He says, I saw one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven who was given the authority, glory, and sovereign power whom all nations will worship. All of these were foretastes in the Old Testament of what Nathaniel is seeing in person. God has, in fact, come down. And he's looking at me face to face. Why is this important? Uh, your pastor got here earlier today with his wife, and they were doing heavy lifting with this old thing, this, this big obnoxious thing. They're putting up new banners. I think these are Epiphany season banners, right? You guys familiar with that? Remember what the word Epiphany means? Well, we start today, it means appearance that God has appeared among us. I, I think it's a terribly important season. I don't know how many other Protestant churches are celebrating it, but we're doing that in a Lutheran church, and that's a good thing. So we're talking about the appearance of Christ as the Son of God. And, and why is it a good thing? In spite of all that we put into Christmas, and because of the culture to a degree, I, I think we still miss the point sometimes at Christmas. Maybe we get caught up in the sentiment of Mary and Joseph, and what a tough journey, and, and what an awful way to have a first child, and, and we live in their sandals, and we go through some of those emotions. Or, or the shepherds, what a beautiful thing, and, and how great was that that they became the first evangelists? Or, or we talk about the wise men and say, what, what an incredible thing that they would come from so far 
make such a journey and stick around for so long and bring such wealthy presents. And we skip over the main point that Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the sages understood that that's God himself who has appeared among us. He has invaded his world and come to claim it back from satanic grasp. That that's the point of Christmas, that he has appeared. And so we ponder these things and, and we treasure these things. And we remind ourselves he, he didn't just come for a short visit and to make his presence known. He said, I will be with you forever. And we're reminded he didn't come to just say a few things in a smart way for one generation, but that he comes back to us repeatedly. And that that's what Christmas means, that God invades our planet and he invades our lives personally. There are other sections of the Bible where it makes clear that God came for the whole world. John chapter 1 is one of the ways in which God says, I came for you individually. I invaded your space in a lonely sort of place, not in an airport, but in your lonely little life, I came and I sat down, not apart from you, but I sat right next to you. And I said, you're mine. You're chosen. You're forgiven. Not for a time, but for eternity. This is an invasion of space, and we're happy for it, aren't we?